0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. This Sunday, we are going to begin our Christmas series. We're beginning our Christmas series, and each year we celebrate this season of Christmas to celebrate our materialism. And you might be thinking, materialism? Are Um, But I'm not talking about the materialism that you might be thinking of, such as gifts and presents. Because as a society, we're not really materialistic. We are consumeristic. We buy things, and we use things, and we trash things, and we throw it away, and then we save up our money so we can buy the thing that we just trashed so that we can trash it again. That is not materialism. That is consumerism. Materialism is when you have a material and you value that material and you watch over it, and you protect it, and you, you appreciate what it's worth. The United Kingdom understands materialism. I was over there, and I got the privilege to study over there abroad for one semester, and I studied at a university which library was older than this country. It was a functioning library. It wasn't memorialized. There wasn't a, um, a gate that you had to get through. It was a library that people could walk in and walk out older than the United States of America, that is materialism. While I studied there, it just felt like that there was a sacredness to the space. That while I was there studying, I was a part of something bigger than myself. That somehow this material place had a transcendence about it. It pointed to something bigger and something greater. And so when we come, and I say that we come and we celebrate materialism, I'm talking about the coming of our Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I'm talking about the coming of God as a baby. I'm talking about the transcendent God who up until this point was just spirit. But yet he took on flesh and he became a man and he became physical. And in his physical life, he not only points us towards the transcendent, to, towards something bigger, but he makes peace with God and he invites us to come and be in relationship with the God of the universe, with the God of heaven and earth. This is good news, and this is what Christmas is about. And this brings us to our passage this morning. And so if you guys have your Bibles, I want you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read from there. It will also be on the screen, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And this is the passage that we're going to focus on throughout uh, the next four uh, gatherings as we approach Christmas. Verse 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, those will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, for a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our dear Lord God, we just thank you That you have come. God, we thank you that you have uh, put flesh on yourself and that you came humbly as a child and rested in a manger to declare good news for the world that all oppression would cease, that you would make all things new and right again, and that you conquered death so that we might have the hope of life eternal with you the hope of a relationship with you, the way that you designed things to be from the beginning. God, we thank you that this prophecy has come true. And God, we wait and we ask for you to come as we wait for you to, to bring it to its full end, that you'd make all things new again, beginning with my heart and the hearts of those in this congregation. We love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So this Christmas season, our focus is primarily going to be on verse 6 and the names of the child. And so I'm just going to read verse 6 again for us one more time. It says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names of God that Isaiah announces to this child, that announces to the entire world, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are going to be the focus of the next four weeks. And this week, we're going to kick things off with the name Mighty God, which is quite an interesting name, if you think about it, to give to a child, Mighty God. It's a rather dangerous name, even, to give to a child, It leaves people with a level of uncertainty, wondering what is this child going to be like, this mighty God child. Because you see, at this time in history, there had been people that had come and had claimed the name mighty God for themselves. And these God had become oppressive warlords, demanding much of their followers, and they wreaked havoc on their enemies. They enslaved, and they tortured, and they killed. One of those places was Rome, it is where the empire himself the emperor himself had declared himself god a mighty god and he had come to rule the world with an iron fist and in rome if a child were to come that was not that of the emperor and claimed to be god that claimed to be the son of god or the mighty god and if he were to come and begin to establish a kingdom that would be seen as so threatening that they would have to kill him and that is what happens to this child, But before we get to that, we need to look just a little bit above verse 6. I mean, at verse 6, but just a little bit above the names and see what comes before the names. Here in Isaiah, before the names, it says this. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Which sounds like this child is going to rule that this child is going to have a kingdom. Which leads us to the question is, what kind of kingdom is this child going to lead? Is it going to be the oppressive mighty God kingdoms that we've seen in the past that we've come to fear? Or is it going to be a different kingdom? And when we translate the word mighty God, it might be better understood to understand the mighty Godness to be champion God or hero God, or warrior God. And when we have these understandings of champion God, warrior God, it begins us to raise a whole other set of questions, such as, who is this God warring against? Who is this God's enemies? And if he's establishing a kingdom that's going to be champion, that's going to conquer his enemies, what does it take to be a part of that kingdom? What does that kingdom look like? What is required to be a part of that victory. And to answer these questions, these questions of kingdom, these questions of enemy, the questions of victory, I think we have to look at this child's life. What life did this child lead? And to that, we should go to the beginning. How did this child come? How did this child come to this world that Isaiah is proclaiming? And so we begin... In the book of Matthew. Now you must understand that Matthew begins in chapter 1 with the narrative of Jesus' birth. But it's after a long time of wait. After the last prophet speaks, there's 400 years of silence. God makes all of these promises of things to come and then he's silent for 400 years. That's a long time to wait for somebody to come through on their promise. And so that's why when we open Matthew, the first book, the first gospel, the thing that declare the good news that God is at work, we find this child that God told us about in Isaiah, that he has come. And so we read in Matthew, it says this, Now this is the birth of Jesus Christ, and it took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This God has come and rested with us. In Matthew's gospel, in this birth narrative, it is declared that God has come and he is with us. He is among us. Matthew is sounding the alarm. He's saying to the world, this child that Isaiah said that would be given, this child that was said to be a mighty God, he is here and he has arrived and he is here now and he is with us. And this is good news. But Matthew doesn't give us actually the whole Picture of the story of Jesus is coming to that. We have to go to the book of Luke. And so in the second chapter of Luke, we find this. We find that Joseph is told to go up to Galilee, to the town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and the lineage of David. And he was there to be registered with Mary, who was betrothed with him, and who was with child. And while they were there in Bethlehem, in this city of David, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to their firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This mighty God is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of King David of the Old Testament, which makes sense. It makes sense that a mighty God, that a king would be born in the city of the king's. But outside of that detail, the story doesn't make much sense. Because if this is the king of kings, if this is the king of all the earth, and he's being born in the city of the kings, you'd expect him to be born in a palace. You'd expect him to be born with trumpets and with a declaration in a royal court. And instead, he's born in a lowly manger. He's born in a barn with animals feeding right there. Next to him. That's where he gets to lay his head. What an interesting story that challenges all that we expect from a mighty God. It challenges what we think of when we think of the idea of being mighty. Because oftentimes when we think of being mighty, we think of powerful strength. We think of oppressive violence. And we think of unending wealth this was Rome. Rome was seen to be a mighty kingdom and they had powerful strength and they had oppressive force and they had unending wealth but here the creator of heaven of the creator of heaven and earth comes and he's not armed with armies from heaven to come and wipe out oppression rather he comes as an infant naked with no armor with no spear, with no wealth, and he's humbly placed in a food trough with the animals eating beside him. This is the mighty God who comes and he appears weak in stature, but in doing that, he's redefining what it means to be mighty in just the first hours of his birth. Jesus is here to redefine and reshape what we think is mighty and powerful In our world. But the story of his birth doesn't end there. If we continue in the book of Luke, we read, and in that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, born this day, in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is a great multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Now, many of us who know this story all too well, kind of like Beth was saying, as we know the song, O Holy Night, (laughs) so well, the story of the shepherds coming to the manger is all too familiar. We know that the angels come to the shepherds, that they're the first to hear, and they're the first to show up. And it's so familiar that we miss what is being declared here. We miss what God is doing. Because the first people to hear about God's birth, the birth announcement goes to these shepherds in the field. that doesn't go to his fellow kings in the region. He doesn't send his birth announcement to the fellow leaders and the fellow rich leaders around the world. No, instead he goes to the shepherd people. He goes to the people who are known for being the poorest of the poor, the nomadic shepherds of the region. They had no home. These shepherds were homeless. These shepherds were not going to a census. You see, Mary and Joseph were heading to a census because they belonged to a country. They belonged to a nation. But these guys do not claim to be citizens to any nation. And it's here in the wilderness, free from any type of political boundary of possession, that the heavens declare that the mighty God is come. And he's here to establish his kingdom. And that it's for all people in all places. What an awesome story of strength. The way way that he redefines what it is that a kingdom is, what strength is. In Jesus' birth, we find out that his kingdom is different than any other kingdom. That in his kingdom is not for the rich. It's not for those who already have their place. But his kingdom is rather for those who are poor. His kingdom are for those who are oppressed. His kingdom is for those who have been left wandering in the wilderness. It's for those who have been left unclaimed. This is the kingdom that God, the mighty God, this child has come to establish. And it is good news. It is good news. And we see that as this child develops, we see how he lives out these kingdom philosophies and ideals. Because when we see Jesus go to choose his disciples, he does something incredibly radical for the time. Because at that time, when Jesus was ready to begin his ministry, he had become known as a powerful rabbi. He was an incredible teacher. And in that time, when rabbis was ready to, were, were ready to start um, teaching disciples, what often would happen is that they would host interviews. And they would have people come and apply to be disciples to them. So each rabbi had their own set of disciples in which they had a number of applicants come and apply to be the disciple and follow him. And so what would happen in Jewish education is that as starting from a little age, they would begin to memorize the Old Testament. They would begin to memorize the first five books of the Bible, and if they did that well, they would continue in school, and they'd begin to memorize the entire rest of the Old Testament, the histories, the prophets, the Psalms, memorized. And then at age 12 to 13, if they were good enough, if they were the best of the best, their teachers would say, hey, you might want to consider applying to be a disciple of a certain rabbi. And so they would go, and they would study, and they would, they would prepare, and they would f- they would think about the philosophies and the teachings of the rabbi that they would want to apply to. They would, they would study for the exam, and they would go, and they would say, Rabbi, can, can I be your disciple? And there would be a quiz about Torah. There would be a quiz about the Old Testament. There would be a quiz about his teaching style. And if he was good enough, if that rabbi thought that this guy could eventually be a rabbi, if this guy could do what I did, then he would say, yes, come, follow me. That's what it was to be a disciple in Jesus' time. But Jesus doesn't do that. He holds no interviews. He There are no quizzes. Instead, he walks up to two Jewish fishermen, and he says, drop your nets and come, follow me. Now, these guys, they're not the best of the best because they're fishing. They failed school. They dropped out. They picked up the family trade. They're with their dad. They're with their pops in the boat. And Jesus says, come, follow me, the mighty God. You'd think he would want the best of the best. You'd think that he would seek out the best of the best. You'd think that he would have the most top-notch disciples. Instead, he comes and he invites those that you least expect to be his disciple. And in saying, he's saying, I believe that you can come and do what I do. There's a verse that Jesus says, you are going to do exorbitantly more than me. And that's his hope for his disciples. And that's what Jesus does. (coughs) And that's what Jesus does as he comes. He, He comes picking the lowly. And so one day, as he's with his disciples, Jesus is walking around, and a rich man comes up to Jesus. And he asks him, what good deed must he do to enter the kingdom of God, to have eternal life? He's essentially asking Jesus, what must I do to be a part of your kingdom? This man that's rich, he comes up to him and he asks him this. And Jesus interprets his question, this question of what good deed must I do, as him saying, uh, and Jesus replies to him saying, there's no good in this world but the Father. Jesus sees that this guy, this guy that's rich, he's trying to manipulate Jesus. He's trying to say, what's the one thing that I can do to have eternal life? What can I do to come and be a part of your kingdom? But Jesus says, no, no, no. There's only one thing that's good, and that's my father. Jesus is implying to this guy already that the only way that you get citizenship into his kingdom is through something that's given. It's something that's not earned but it's something that's given. And if we think about the words of Isaiah, we have this child that is given to us. But the rich man misses this line, and he keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going to try and prove himself to Jesus. He says, well, Jesus, I've kept all of the commandments since I was a child. This guy's a mighty rule follower. But Jesus doesn't want just a mighty rule follower for his kingdom. He wants somebody that's going to seek out the oppressed, help the poor, and love his neighbor. And so he tells him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure. Come, follow me. But the man leaves dissatisfied with Jesus' answer and this invitation into his kingdom because the rich man wanted a way to fit Jesus into his own kingdom of wealth. He wanted to fit Jesus into his own kingdom of prosperity and self-righteousness. But as we find with Jesus, these things have no place in the kingdom of the almighty God. He's saying that this might is reserved just for those who can't prove their strength and ability. This kingdom is for those who are too weak and who can admit their weakness we find to be true, we find this to be true because on the Sabbath, Jesus comes up to a guy. He approaches a man who's been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus asks him, Do you want to be well? I mean, what, what an interesting question from Jesus, the like the, the prophetic teacher. There's a man crippled lying on a mat, they know that he's been crippled for 38 years, and he goes, up, Do you want to be well? And this conversation is really profound because the man on the mat, instead of saying, yes, that would be great, he he begins to almost stutter and say, well, I'd like to be well, but I really can't because I don't have anyone to take care of me, and um, there's this pool, and if I could just get into the pool, um, if somebody could just help me into the pool, then I'd be well. And so he starts talking about how he doesn't even address his own ailment, but he talks about how there's no one around him, that there's no one there to take care of him, how his life would be not improved by just being well, but... His life would be improved if he just had a caretaker. This man's vision for his life was far too small than the vision that the mighty God had come. Here he had come and offered the man, do you want to be well, full restoration? And the man starts stuttering, well, it would just be nice if I had somebody to take care of me. And Jesus is saying, no, do you want to be well? And Jesus tells this man, pick up your mat and walk, and he brings full restoration. What a mighty God, a God who wages war against sickness and infirmary, who does not use his power to make oppression and to rule by force, but he comes and he serves with compassion and grace to those who are not even able to serve himself. The man was not even able to take care of himself, and he says, This kingdom that I've come is for you. I've come as a mighty God for you. This child is continually defining what it is to be mighty. And to be mighty is to be a servant to those whom you can receive nothing from in return. This is the kingdom that is at hand. This is the kingdom that's near. But this is also the kingdom. And this claim that Jesus is the mighty God that gets him in deep trouble with the religious leaders. And they become angry. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And he was making himself equal equal with God. And it would be this claim, this claim of mighty God, that would cause Jesus to face his greatest foe, death itself. Because up until this point, we've seen Jesus, the mighty God, in his kingdom fight against forces of oppression, fight against forces of great poverty, fight against victims of abuse and sickness. You see, all of these things, abuse, sickness, poverty, oppression, these are all things that suck the life out of someone, leaving them for dead. And these things... The things that bring death are the things that the kingdom of God has, up until this point, championed and worked against, bringing new life. But death and sin, that's a completely different challenge. But it's here on the cross where the almighty God would truly be given for us. Given as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Because if you're going to conquer death, if you're going to war against death, you must conquer the thing that empowers death. And that is our sin. That is your sin and my sin. And it is on that cross that Jesus, the mighty God, the son, the child that was to be born, is given for you and me, for our sins, so that we might have life again And so it's here on the cross, the mighty God willfully goes to his death. And as he's there on the cross with blood dripping down him with a crown of thorns on his head, as he's breathing his last, if you were a disciple there, you might be thinking, Mighty God? What about the kingdom for the poor? What about the kingdom for the oppressed? What about redefining what it means to be mighty But we shouldn't lose faith too quickly because if anything that this mighty God has taught us, it's that being truly mighty is often found in the appearance of being weak. And there's nothing more weak than being dead. And it's on the day of his death that Jesus mightily champions over death and sin as well. And it's for those who admit that they cannot save themselves for all places and all time. All we must do is come and acknowledge that and receive him as Lord of our life, the mighty God of our life. Because when Jesus wins, we win. And on the third day, he doesn't remain dead and he comes back to life. And he says, I have conquered death. I have conquered sin. I have established my kingdom and it will reign forever. And to it, there will be no end. This is the good news of God that speaks into our darkness right here, right now. We live in a world that's continually demanding us to become mighty, to become rich, to acquire more wealth, to walk over others. It is the survival of the fittest. We use and abuse whatever you need to get to the top. That is what makes you mighty in today's world. But this Christmas, there's a child in a manger who lived a different life, who was and is and is to come, who's coming to bring peace, who teaches us that it is in our weakness, that he is made strong. And so when we submit ourselves to the mighty God, Of this child that was given to us, who was broken and poured out for us on our behalf, we find ourselves on the side of life, knowing that through his great compassion and grace, our God came and was the warrior God who came and championed over sin and death, giving us the hope of new life eternal with him. This is good news. We must also know that the kingdom of God is still near and that we must put our trust in him, that he will do far more abundantly in us than we ask or think according to the power that's working within us. This mighty God, this God conquering, this warrior God, the power that raised him from the dead is within us. And we have to acknowledge that and that he's here to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to his power. And he's here to do that. So, for the very fact that his glory would be made known in the church, right here, amongst us, a group of broken believers that gather on a Sunday, he wants to make his glory known here, right now. This is where he wants his kingdom to come. And through his son, Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. This is the good news. This is what Christmas Is about. It's about a child in a manger redefining what it is to be mighty, what it is to be powerful, and what it is to be conquering. In Jesus' might, he was humble. In Jesus' power, he served. And in his conquering, he invites us to share in the spoils of his victory. Jesus is the Almighty God. And we must walk knowing that we have access to this power. That we are citizens of a kingdom that is working against the current systems and the current kingdoms of our age. That we serve one whose name is mighty God and that he is here to establish a new kingdom. He did not come to be known only in the past, but he came that we might have life now here. That he might be known amongst our neighbors. That he might be known in the city of Madison And so as we leave here today and we enter that kingdom, the kingdom where might is still seen as violence and power and oppression, we go out with a new definition of what it is to be mighty. And we go out with a new vision of what it is to work for a kingdom that works against those things, that gives to the poor, that works against the oppressed that loves those who can't love themselves, that serves those who can't serve themselves. That is the good news that we have. This is what Christmas is about. And we need it. We need Jesus to come. The only way that we go out into this world and be effective is not through our own strength. We can't come and say, yes, let's go to war on our own power. The only way that we are victorious is through the power of Of the mighty God. And so the prayer during the Christmas season, traditionally for thousands of years, is this Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so as we see a world around us that is suffering, that understands might as power and oppression and violence, we must pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And it's my hope that this morning we would accept the mighty God's invitation to become and live as citizens, as another kingdom. And that this kingdom of God would be the Merry Christmas that we all desperately need and are yearning for. And so as we go out these doors, I just encourage you to seek the power of God in our own lives. And may we live the Christmas story, this story of the mighty God who came humbly, who served in his power, and invited us to share in his victory. May we go out and do the same. And so as we continue in worship, we're going to sing a couple more songs. And we're going to participate in this meal that's called a communion. And in this communion, we have this juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. And we have these crackers that represents his body that was broken for us. And we take this in community because we, together as a community, testify and we declare to the world that God came. That the mighty God has come and that he gave his life for us and that he was broken and poured out for us. And as we participate in this meal, as we break the bread and as we drink the juice, we also proclaim that we are willing participants of his kingdom. That we are going to go forth and allow ourselves to be broken in the ways that he was broken for others that we are going to go out and be poured out in sacrificial ways, the way that he was poured out for others. In us as a community, as a church, by participating in this meal, we declare the good news that God has come and that he has established a kingdom that is working against the forces of evil out there. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. May this church be a light, and may we as a body live out the light May we be that light in the darkness around us. May we be that hope and that good news. And so as we participate in this meal, may we thank God for the ways that he was broken and poured. And may we also allow God to challenge us in ways that we might be broken and poured out for one another. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you for this day and we thank you for this time to come together and to get into your word. And God, I thank you that you are the mighty God. But God, that your might did not come in vengeance and oppression and wrath, but it came in a baby. It came in a baby that came to redefine what it is to be mighty. And God, may you give us the strength in our weakness to go and be mighty on your behalf so that your name might be made known amongst our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters in this city here. We love you, God, and we worship you.